All right, we're going to finish up Hebrews here this morning. I hope you've enjoyed our study through um, the book of Hebrews. Of course, it's been, it's been um, you know, kind of a lightning tour of Hebrews. Uh, we could have spent a lot more time, but we didn't have the time. Uh, so we're going to finish things up today with looking at the 13th chapter, and I'm going to zero in on verses 20 and 21. But I do want to read uh, to us chapter 13, just so we have the continuity of um, just the final words here in the epistle. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, if you have your Bible, open it to Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, If you have your phone and you have a Bible app on it, then... uh, go there. All right. Here it is. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us that we are, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably, but especially I urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight 
Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, Lord, we pray as we just now consider uh, here today this, this final teaching in Hebrews, as you have done so faithfully all throughout the week, would you just once again uh, speak to us today? We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So as, as we come to the, to the final chapter here, as, as you can see as we read through it, um, this, is the, this is the chapter uh, along with the, the 12th chapter where there's kind of the application portion of the letter. And, and this is the way all the New Testament letters are. If you look at them, um, they, they begin with... Uh, a doctrinal statement, essentially. They begin by telling us um, things about God, things about who He is, about what He's done for us. And then after laying that foundation of who God is and what He's done, then the writers come to the application. They come to the, to the place in the text where they say, okay, now, since all of this is true and since now you know this, this is what you're to do in response. And so that's what the author has done here. Uh, pretty much all the way through, he's been laying out this, this um, you know, theology, really. Uh, he's been laying down doctrinally for us the, the supremacy of Christ over all others and, you know, his sacrifice. And, and so we've looked at all those things. And so now here is the application. And as we saw there in the verses that we read, he talks about a number of different things here in chapter 13. Uh, lifestyle kinds of things. Mentions marriage, uh, talks about hospitality, um, you know, and, and a number of, of different things. He talks about praise and worship and things like that. But then he comes to what is known as the, the benediction. And, and that's what I want to focus on today. The benediction, it's, the, it's that final blessing that the author places upon us there, and it's in verses 20 and 21, where he says, now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work. So I, I want to really just uh, focus in on that passage here today, because it's in this passage that we really get the, the proper understanding of how it is we're to live the Christian life. So, of course, all of the things that are told to us are told to us for the ultimate purpose that we would uh, receive those things, that we would apply them, and that they would produce the transformation in us that God is looking to produce. And here in this benediction, we see God's way of living the Christian life. Now, I, I say God's way of living the Christian life because um, not everybody really understands uh, just how it is that we are to live the Christian life. 
And, and lots of times it's, it's due to uh, ignorance on our part, um, you know, because we're so wired toward uh, doing, we're so wired toward kind of a works approach to our salvation, we often think that the, the primary responsibility for us uh, to move forward, to be transformed, we, we often think that that burden is, is primarily upon us, but it's not. And that's the wonderful thing that we see in this passage. It reminds us that the work that God is wanting to accomplish in and through our lives, He is the one who's going to accomplish it through us as we know certain truths and as we apply those truths in our lives. And so that's what I hope to do here. Now, it's a little awkward for me. I'm just going to confess to you right now. I'm having an awkward moment here because I have never before preached with my laptop. And now I'm realizing all of a sudden my screen's turning off and now I got to scroll this and I can't set this here. So if I look flustered up here, it's because I am. <laughs> but my iPad didn't work. So it's like, okay, I'm stuck with the, um, I'm stuck with the laptop. So, um, but I'm going to try to make my, my way through here. So, according to God's Word, uh, and particularly the passage that we just read there, Hebrews 13, 20, and 21, um, the Christian life is not about putting forth our best effort to do something for God, but rather it's about God working in and through us by the indwelling presence of Christ. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that we, we don't put forth any effort. It doesn't mean that we just sort of sit around and wait for God to come along and sweep us up and take us off, you know, into sanctification. We, we have to yield. We have to surrender. But that's really primarily our part. We yield, we surrender, we obey, and then God does the work in us, and, and ultimately then God will do the work through us. There are two other passages here in the New Testament that remind us of that. Let me read them to you. Uh, one is found in Ephesians, and the other is found in Philippians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love that passage. Now, the verses just before it, as perhaps you know, they tell us that salvation is by grace through faith. It's, it's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone bo- should boast. But then it goes on to say, for we are His workmanship. Uh, the Greek word that's translated workmanship is poema. We get our English word poem from that. But, but the Greek word doesn't actually mean poem like we think of it. The Greek word means something more like work of art. So we are God's work of art. We are, you could even translate it masterpiece. So when you think of an artist, now the art doesn't produce itself, does it? No, the artist produces the art. And so God is the great artist. We are his workmanship. We are that, that, that work of art. Uh, again, Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 says something similar It says, for it is God who works in you 
both to will and to do of his good pleasure. See, this is a beautiful thing about the Christian life. God works in us. God has come and taken up a residence in our life. So you see, all religions and some forms of Christianity uh, have the wrong idea that that we do things that will we, we do things outwardly that will um, make us holy inwardly. The Bible has it just the just the reverse. No, God does something in us, and what He does in us is He plants His own life in us, and then that works itself out into our behavior. So God is working in you to will, which means to to want to, to will, and then to do to accomplish his good pleasure. And so that is what is being expressed here in this final benediction. And this final blessing that the author puts on the people at the end of the book, um, that's basically what he's doing. So I want to walk us through these two verses. So it says, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep. Let's look at that first. The first thing we need to consider is God himself. This is always where we have to start. Any Christianity that starts with man is starting in the wrong place. We always have to start with God. And if we start with God and if we get that that understanding of God and if we get our lives built on the foundation of who God is and what he's done, then everything goes according to plan. So we start with God, and what are we told about God? Well, the first thing we're told is that He is the God of peace, the God of peace. Five other times in the New Testament, God is called the God of peace. Jesus, of course, He spoke about peace. He said, Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. He said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. Think of that passage back in uh, the prophet Jeremiah. God's thoughts toward us are thoughts of peace and not of evil. So what the author wants us to know, at the very conclusion of everything that he's been saying, he wants us to have in the forefront of our minds a, a proper understanding of the God that we're serving, and the first thing he says is he is the God of peace. He is the God of shalom. The, the, the Hebrew word, of course, is shalom. And, and the Hebrew word shalom, now, you know, we translate that peace, and that is uh, a good translation, but it's not really as, um, as deep as the word shalom. Shalom is a deeper word than peace. Because in our understanding, peace can just be, you know, it's just the absence of conflict. So we might say, yeah, you know, yeah, there's kind of a peace thing going on right now. But it's it's very um, tenuous. You know, it, it could change any moment. That's not shalom. Shalom is something that is much deeper. It's, it's more of a permanent kind of thing. And the idea of shalom is, is well-being, like just thoroughly, all throughout your life, there, there's well-being. So that's the first thing that he wants us to know about God, that he is the God of peace. Secondly, 
He's the God of power. How do we know that? Because he brought our Lord Jesus back from the dead. God is a God of power. And as Jesus himself said, nothing shall be impossible with God. And we we need to remember this. We need to remember that God is a God of peace and his thoughts toward us are thoughts of well-being. He is devoted to, he's, he's committed to our well-being and he has the power to bring it about in our lives. And he showed us that he has the power by raising Christ from the dead. That's the, that's the great demonstration of God's power. And so when I look at my situation and I wonder, am I ever going to move forward? Am I, am I ever going to make it uh, to God's desired destination for me? The answer is yes, you are because it's God who's at work in you. And because God is the God of power. And so he's uh, the God of power. Thirdly, we see that he is a God of care and compassion because notice he's referred to as the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Jesus, of course, here is referred to as the great shepherd of the sheep, but we know that that is the same um, title that's given to Yahweh in Psalm 23, Yahweh is my shepherd. And there Jesus in John's gospel, he says, I am the good shepherd. So father and son being identified together. But just again, remember that our God is a God of care and compassion. You know, sheep are, one thing about sheep is that they are, uh, their well-being is really dependent on the shepherd's care. Sheep left to themselves will not survive. They need to be taken care of. And that's, that's, of course, one of the reasons why God, in referencing our relationship with him, he refers to us as sheep. Because of that very fact that, that we, that just as sheep need uh, someone to care for them, we need someone to care for us. Because left to ourselves, we will bring about our own demise. And I think we all probably uh, know that that's true from from our own life experience. But, you know, if we just look around us, we don't have to look far to to see people who are in self-destruct mode. Their, their, Their lifestyle is a destructive lifestyle they even know it's a destructive lifestyle, but they, they just somehow can't get freed from it. So we have a shepherd that comes and delivers us from those things. So he's the God of peace. He's a God of power. He's a God of care and compassion. The second thing that we need to consider is the work of God. And that is referred to here when it says, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So we consider who God is. Now we consider the work of God. The word covenant 
And we, we've, we've come across this word already many times here in Hebrews. The word covenant recalls all the writer has said about God having forgiven our sin, cleansed our conscience, written his law in our hearts, and given us access into the holy of holies. It was the blood that sealed the covenant by which the blessings of perfect pardon and direct fellowship with God were secured for us. So we are in a covenant with God. And listen, it's called the everlasting covenant. What does that mean? It means it's a permanent covenant. God's brought you into a covenant relationship with, with him. He has covenanted. We, we sometimes use the word in that way. God's made a covenant. He's made a pact with us. And it's an everlasting covenant. Meaning simply, it's an unbreakable covenant. Meaning even more simply that God is going to do what he promised to do. That, when he goes into covenant with someone, that's what it is. God's making promises that are unalterable. Now, in the Bible, we have, we have conditional promises and we have unconditional promises. The everlasting covenant is really an unconditional promise. It's not based upon you, it's based upon God's faithfulness. And that's the wonderful reality. When God speaks of this covenant, he speaks of it in the, um, in the Old Testament, he speaks of it through the prophet uh, Jeremiah. Simon, when he was teaching through the eighth chapter the other day, he, um, uh, of course, in the eighth chapter, there's the reference back to the uh, Jeremiah passage. And, and remember, God says, in that day, I will make a new covenant with them. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with them because that covenant they broke. They didn't continue in it, but I'm going to make a new covenant with them. I'm going to write my law in their, uh, up, upon their minds and put it in their heart. And they're going to be my people and they're never going to depart from me again. You see, the nature of the new covenant is it's permanent, it's everlasting, it's unalterable. That is the covenant that we have entered into as we have come into this relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have been brought into the everlasting covenant. And now the writer goes on and he says, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, May God make you complete. And so here's where we get into what I really want to, to emphasize here this morning. And it's that, that fact of God working in us. Make you complete. The idea is that he would totally perfect us. That he would thoroughly equip us. Make you complete in every good work. Remember the Ephesians 2.10 passage, for it is God or uh, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It, basically, the author is saying the exact same thing here, that, that God himself is going to make us complete in every good work. So the good works which God prepared beforehand that we are to walk in as we simply surrender to him, he's going to bring us into that. He's going to do it. He that has begun 
a good work in you will complete it. Paul said that to the Philippians with absolute uh, confidence. God's going to He's going to finish what he started. And uh, the passage that Cheryl looked at this morning, uh, Jesus, remember it says there in chapter 12 that he is the author. She focused in on the author. He's the champion of our faith. But remember what it also says? He is the finisher. So he's going to finish. He's going to make you complete. That's his promise in every good work. Now, let me just clarify this. I think many of you know this, but sometimes even for people who have uh, known the Lord for a long time and, you know, understand the Christian faith, there, there is confusion sometimes over the issue of works. And here's what we need to understand, that works are the fruit of salvation. They're the fruit of salvation. They're not the root In other words, works do not precede salvation, or I don't do good things so I can get salvation. No, I do good things because I have been saved, and now it's God working in me. So, nothing I do before putting my faith and trust in Jesus is acceptable to God as a work. If I just decided, you know, I don't need Jesus. I'm just going to be, um, I'm just going to be a really good person. I'm going to be really kind. I'm going to be really generous. I'm going to be really gracious. And um, I'm going to, you know, give my resources to help people. And that's going to be enough for God. God's going to accept me on that basis. He won't. He can't. He doesn't. Because even those good things that we do, they're tainted by sin. We're all sinners. So we come to Jesus. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. I I just come, Lord, I've got nothing to offer you, but I receive your gift of salvation. So there's no work involved there. But then when I receive that salvation, because God takes up residence in me, like we're reading about here, He's going to then produce those works from us because of his presence in us. And that's what he's talking about here. Make you complete in every good work to do his will. Do not miss this. God has a plan for you, every single one of you. God has a plan for every single one of our lives. There's not a single person in this room that God doesn't have a plan for. So God has a will. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He has something. uh, Well, of course, ultimately, it's to come into fellowship with him and enjoy his presence forever in his kingdom. But in the meantime, presently, God has a plan. He has a purpose for our lives. And so contrary to atheistic opinion, which says basically that life really doesn't have any meaning, there really isn't any purpose, it's all just, you know, random chance. Now, some people believe that or they say they believe that. Some people promote that, preach that. 
I, I would, in some cases, I don't even want to argue about it. I just simply reject it. I do not, I, I reject that. Because everything in my being as a person tells me that that isn't true. Everything in me says that there's significance to my life. There, there's some purpose for me being here. There, there's some meaning behind my existence. That's just intuitive. It's, we know it. You have to be educated out of that. It's falsely educated, really. You have to be educated out of that because all of reality says, no, there, there is a purpose. Well, the Bible tells us even more specifically that there is a purpose. Yes, God has a will for you. He has a plan. He has something that he wants to do in and through your life that will glorify him and that will bless other people. That's, that's kind of in a nutshell what it comes down to. I mean, there's all different kinds of details to that and they vary from person to person, but that's kind of where it's all directed toward the glory of God and the blessing of others. And so what are we being told here? We're being told that God is the one who will. He will make you complete. He will totally perfect. He will thoroughly equip you in every good work to do His will. And then He says this, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. See, that's the beauty of it. God, again, we're back to that same idea. God working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So you see, because God works in us through Jesus Christ, the key is giving ourselves more to Jesus. Like I said earlier, it's, it's really all about yielding. Sometimes, oftentimes, and all of us probably at least at some time or another, in our, even in our Christian lives, we have thought that the, you know, that the way it's done is to... Um, is to, you know, just, just to try harder. I, I just got to try harder. I want to try to be a better Christian. Now, again, that's understandable that we think that way because kind of in much of life, that's how it works. <laughs> you want to be better at this, you try harder at that. But it's different in the kingdom of God. It's not so much about you trying harder. It's about us surrendering and letting Jesus who lives in us work his plan and purpose through us. So, you know, the kingdom of God, perhaps you've heard this before, put like this, the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. It's kind of just the, the, the reverse of the kingdoms of men. Remember, Jesus said it like this. He said, in the kingdom of men, he said, this is how you tell who's great. In the kingdom of men, great people rule over other people. That's, that's what greatness looks like in the kingdom of men. What did Jesus say? That's not the case in my kingdom. Jesus said, in my kingdom, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. Wow, that's upside down, right? That's just completely reversed 
of the way we think. There was one uh, point where the, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they, they were talking about money and, you know, riches and all of that sort of thing. And, and Jesus said to them, he said, you know, that which is highly esteemed among people, human beings, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. So we have to understand we're in an upside down kingdom, but it's actually the right side up. And it's the kingdom that will ultimately engulf the earth. But it, Jesus himself modeled it because Jesus came and rather than exercising dominion, what did he do? He became the servant of all. He became the servant. He humbled himself to the point of the death on the cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. And so because Christ lives in us, that is the same way things are going to happen for us. So it's not a matter of I have got to be more determined. I've got to have greater willpower. What it really comes down to is I just, I need to yield more to Jesus. I need to let my life be uh, engulfed in the things of the Spirit. So let me just give you a quick picture of what that looks like. So let me say this. The key to spiritual progress and betterment is not by making a new set of rules to live by, but by cultivating your relationship with Jesus Christ. See, that's it. Cultivating your relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed this? And maybe you've had this experience in your life. Maybe you you met somebody, you uh, somehow, you know, you come into a relationship with someone, you really admire them, you just really are impressed with who they are, you spend some time with them. And have you ever had the experience where you sort of just find yourself acting like them? Find yourself sort of talking like them? Taking on some of their mannerisms? You know, using some of their phrases and things like that. Of course, we see that in genetics, right? We see that in our children for parents. You know, sometimes I look in the mirror and, I, and my dad is looking right back at me. Sometimes I'm, I'm saying something to my kids and it's like my dad's talking to them. You know, sometimes I look in the mirror and my mom's looking right at me. Like, wow, this is crazy. But, you know, even with my my own children, the other day, uh, my oldest daughter, she's 37 years old, and people have always said, oh, Kristen is her name. Kristen looks so much like her mother. I have never seen that in my entire life. 37 years, and I've never thought that Kristen looked like her mother. The other day, (laughs) I was looking at uh, my younger daughter was showing me some pictures from a long time ago, and there was a picture of Cheryl, and when I looked at it, first glance, I thought that was Kristen. The first time, I thought, oh my gosh, they do look alike. You know, it's, it's that genetic thing. Sometimes I'll see that in my sons. They'll, they'll have an expression or something, and I feel like, oh, that, that's me talking to me right there. Okay, so what is my point in all that? My point is this. Christ is in us. And the more we cultivate that, and the more we spend time with him, guess what happens? We start being like him. We start thinking like he thinks through the influence of his word upon our minds. We start feeling like he feels. We start acting like he acts. We start doing the things he does. 
But you see, it's an organic thing. It's not, it's not a mechanical thing. That's what I'm trying to emphasize. It's not a mechanical thing. It's not like, okay, here are the rules. Now let's just make sure we get all these rules taken care of. That's the old covenant. The old covenant was outside of us or outside of them. We weren't around then. The new covenant is something inside of us. God has written his law upon our hearts and minds. And he's taken up residence within us. So, yielding to the impulses or promptings of the Spirit, that's the way we manifest the life of God. That's the way we progress. That's the way we grow. And let me just say five things very quickly that are simple and they're the foundational things for progress in the Christian life. Five things, word, prayer, fellowship, serving, and witness. Those five things. If we immerse ourselves in those things, you know what we're going to find? We're going to find that we are progressing. We are progressing toward what? We are becoming more Christ-like. We're becoming more like Jesus. Let me emphasize each one for a moment. Word. Listen, you cannot progress as a Christian apart from God's Word. You can't do it. It's impossible. Because God's Word is the means through which the, the progress takes place. Jesus prayed this prayer. He said, Father, sanctify them. That means set them apart. Make them more like me. Sanctify them, Father, through your truth. Your word is truth. See, that's how we become more like the living word is by ingesting the written word. And so, know this. That to the degree that you take in God's word, to that same degree, you will be transformed into the image of God's son. So we need to be in God's word. We need to pray, which means we have conversations with God. We talk to him. We might have... uh, times of collective prayer. We might have times of very designated prayer where we're alone in our prayer closet, so to speak. But there's also just that conversational kind of a thing that we have the the beauty of living with daily. One of the things that amazes me about my wife is her just almost like unbroken connection with the Lord. She's always praying about everything. I come home, she's made some amazing dinner that she's never made before. And I'm like, wow, where'd you get this recipe? She goes, oh, I don't know. I was just in the kitchen and I was praying like, Lord, what can I make for dinner? And then, woo, whip this out. It's like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for that recipe. But, but seriously, that's, it's a conversational kind of a thing. And although those other things are important as well, of course, we need to have uh, you know, collective prayer, praying with our brothers and sisters, and at times of maybe personal devoted prayer where we might even be on our knees just, you know, speaking to God about the deep things of life. But then there's just that, that communication. See, God redeemed us for a relationship with Him, and part of that is communication. He wants to hear from us. So prayer, fellowship, community, being with God's people. And isn't it 
I mean, we, we've kind of been experiencing it here all week, haven't we? Just being around God's people, it's so wonderful. It's being able to have a chat, have a conversation about this, talk to somebody about that, share your story, hear their story. One of the things about being here is I, I get so blessed by just hearing stories about how God is working in people's lives. That's what fellowship is, and it builds us up in our faith. We think, wow, God did that for them. I believe that God will do that for me as well. But that needs to be something that regularly occurs in our life. And then serving the Lord. Just, just saying, you know, I want to do something for God. I want to do something for His kingdom. And of course, that will quite often happen through the context of your local church. Go to your pastor. Say, I want to do something for the Lord. What can I do? And it might be some, what might seem like an insignificant task, but it, but it needs to be done. And regardless of what it seems like from maybe the human standpoint, if you're doing it for God, the Bible just tells us that whatever you do, do it with all your heart as to the Lord and not to men, and you will receive the reward from the Lord for that. So serving, and then the final thing is Witness. Because Christ is in us, and because he's doing this work in our lives, that's going to overflow from us, and we are going to look for and take those opportunities to speak to others who don't know Christ about who he is and what he's done in our lives. So when I say yielding to the impulses and promptings of the Spirit, the Spirit's going to prompt us toward each one of these things, because these are the things that he wants us to engage in. This is how we cultivate our spiritual lives. And so as we yield to the promptings of the Spirit, we will be accomplishing, here's the beauty, we will be accomplishing what is well-pleasing in His sight, and in doing that, we will be more and more His workmanship and more and more our true self. Our true self is the, the person that God has created us to be. As we've heard this week, it's been alluded to, and there's so much talk about this currently in the culture, uh, you know, everybody's having an identity crisis of some sort. And people are running off and trying to find, you know, what is my true identity? And some people think, well, you know, I was born male, but, you know, I'm really a female. That's my true identity, and vice versa. And all, all different kinds of things. In, our, in, in the U.S., there was a lady who uh, was working for a chapter of the NAACP. The NAACP is the national, uh, it's like colored people is, I can't remember the, what the letters stand for exactly. But, but she was working for them. She was representing, you know, the African-American community and all. And uh, it was discovered that she was not African-American. She was white very white. Her parents were like Scottish or something, you know. And when it all came out, she said, well, I feel more like an African-American. The funny thing is the culture said, no, you can't. Now, if you're a man and you feel like a girl, you can do that. But if you're white and you feel black, for some reason, that's not allowable. But the point is this. There's serious confusion in the culture today regarding identity. Well, guess what? Your true identity is connected to the one who created you. Your true identity is connected to Christ. 
That's how we find our true identity. I want to say to people who are struggling having an identity crisis, look, you've got to get connected with your creator. He knows what he created you for. And all of that confusion will be gone when you connect with him. So surrender your life to Jesus, the one who created you with a specific and good plan for your life, the one who paid the price to redeem you, the one who forgives your sins, the one who loves you, the one who will restore you, empower you to live a life that is well-pleasing in his sight. And the writer of this letter at the very end of the whole thing, now let me just close it with this. Remember, the letter was written to people who had kind of lost their identity. They'd forgotten. And so they were looking for all other kinds of things to bring them back to that place of security and stability. They, they were trusting in Christ. But now they're thinking, well, maybe it's not here. Maybe it's over here. And maybe it's back in Moses. And well, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's the angels or maybe it's this. And the author's saying, no, it's, it's in Jesus. Get back to Jesus. But then he closes it all with this amazingly reassuring word. And that's what this benediction is. You know, a benediction is a pronounced blessing. And that is what the author is doing. He's basically pronouncing a blessing over them. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Remember, amen, amen means so be it. See, this benediction is not like, man, I really hope that it all works out for you. This benediction is, this is the reality And the God of peace who brought up the Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, he is going to do it for you. What's your part? Just yield. Just surrender. Just say, Lord, here I am. Take me and do in me all that you want to do in the days ahead that you might do through me the things that you want to do. So, Lord, that is our prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this closing word, this closing blessing, this this pronouncement over us, your people, not a a closing word of, well, I hope it works out for you, but a, a closing word of absolute certainty and confidence in your ability to do what you promised to do through the covenant, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Thank you, Lord, that you have covenanted with us to perfect us. And Lord, just if there's a single person today that's still with us that has yet to yield themselves to you, would you just show them right now that that is what they need to do. They just need to receive you. They need to surrender to you because you have the plan 
You have the identity. You have the purpose that they're searching for. It's all wrapped up in you, and you're going to complete what you start in them. They don't have to fear failure because you're going to cause them to succeed because you are the God of power. And so that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.